Welcome to all of you listening to this message. On August the 6th, on Wednesday, the year 2014, this is David Thompson, and I'm here to minister to you the Word of God, seeking to minister as the oracles of God and the spirit of prophecy, as the Word of God commands us. If any man minister, minister, let him minister as the oracles of God. And in that pursuit, I have sought to be led by God to his word for what he would say to myself, to the body of Christ, and to all those who have ended up listening to this message in the foreknowledge of God. Today, I received Psalms 108. And so at just a bit past nine in the evening, on a more busier day, I want to share what I received from a half hour of meditation upon this passage. And so I will first read Psalms 108, a song or psalm of David. O oh God, my heart is fixed. I will sing and give praise, even with my glory. Awake, psaltery, and harp, I myself will awake early. I will praise thee, O Lord, among the people. I will sing praises unto thee among the nations. For thy mercy is great above the heavens, and thy truth reaches unto the clouds. Be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens, and thy glory above all the earth that thy beloved may be delivered, save with thy right hand and answer me. God has spoken in his holiness. I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem and meet out the valley of Sukkoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is the strength of mine head. Judah is my lawgiver. Moab is my washpot. Over Edom will I cast out my shoe. Over Philistia will I triumph. Who will bring me into the strong city? Who will lead me into Edom? Wilt not thou, O God, who has cast us off? And wilt not thou, O God, go forth with our hosts? Give us out from trouble. For vain is the help of man. Through God we shall do valiantly, for he it is that shall tread down our enemies. I'm just going to take a little bit of water here before I begin to share. Beginning in verse 1, King David mentions that this is a psalm or a psalm of David that can be used, in other words, in worship. It is evident from this psalm that this worship is meant to draw one into the place of victory, of deliverance from the enemy, as is mentioned in verse 6, that thy beloved may be delivered Save with thy right hand and answer me. 
and is also is mentioned in verse 10, who will bring me into the strong city? Who will lead me into Edom? And also, verse 12, give us help from trouble, for vain is the help of man. In this psalm, the first thing that David states is that his heart is fixed. And this word fixed basically is the Hebrew word kun, which means to be erect in one's heart. The second sense of the meaning is causatively to set up. In many ways, you set up things. So there's many applications, such as the word establish, fix, prepare, and so on. And as we look at the meaning of this word in the original symbolic language, it is the picture of an open hand which speaks of receptivity. And then the next letter is the picture of a sprouting seed which speaks of life that is ongoing and keeps reproducing itself. So one would conclude that this would basically mean a receptivity of heart to the life of God that endures, that is not only a seed that sprouts, but grows. Now, looking at the pictographic meaning in the Hebrew, which is the original symbolic language of the Hebrew and pictographic letters, when you put those two letters together, the hand, which is an open palm, and the picture of the seed, it means the opening of a seed. And it is true that our hearts need to be brought to the place where they are split open from hardness to sprout forth with receptivity to the life or the light of God that brings life, which light originates from the life of God, which life originates from the love of God. For it is the love of God that contains the unlimited power and the unlimited quality that is life, the unlimited goodness of God. It takes a negative and a positive in electricity to cause the flow of electricity to break the shell which is in each atom. That shell is the spinning of electrons around it very fast so that it forms a hard shell. But it takes a strong negative and a strong positive to breach that hard shell so that those electrons come out of that orbit. And as a result, there's the flow of power and of life. And that is true as to what will happen in the human heart when it is receptive to the life of God. There's an old hymn that goes like this. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. The dungeon flame of heart, the dungeon flame of light 
my chains fell off. I rose, went forth and followed thee. It kind of goes like this. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed it takes reception to the love of God. Now, the love of God is aptly described in modern terminology as the ultimate negative and positive of the universe. It's maybe a crude way of illustrating things, but not really. The negative represents a horizontal line, which represents a foundation. And that represents the integrity of God's being of love, which is this quality that always chooses the highest lasting good over any more immediate fulfillment or gratification. For anything less would not be onto the highest good and therefore would have the principle of destructiveness in it. But God's love has such integrity that it is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest word, thought, or deed that would be contrary to a quality that always chooses the highest lasting good. This is the defensive aspect of the love of God, known as the holiness of God. In the Hebrew, holiness, in its very root meaning, has the understanding of absolute purity. And this is the absolute purity of the love of God. It is the holiness of God. And it is from that foundation represented in the horizontal line or the negative, that springs forth the ability to come forth in creativity out of that foundation with love that can create and provide destiny and purpose for creation, that can be ever enlarging in its creativity, going on without end throughout eternity in greater and greater realms of creativity and fulfillment. It is ultimately manifested in God bringing forth a corporate bride through showing mercy to his creation by taking judgment upon himself in the full expression of himself into this time and space realm in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ upon the cross, the one and only true expression of the one true God governing in the time and space realm and the Father being that government beyond time and space, seeing the end from the beginning and the originator. I don't want to get into the theology of the, of the oneness of God, but I'm bringing an illustration out here. So King David's heart is fixed upon who God is, and out of God's love, which is this quality that is holy and that can be transcendent in mercy, comes the brightness of the light that contains unlimited life and power that can enter his heart and break the hardness because he chooses to be erect towards who God is. He is choosing to fear God, to recognize who God is. 
to not be a seed that is hard, but a seed whose shell has been split open by the light of truth, by being receptive to, first, the holiness of God, out of which is perceived the greatness of God's mercy and thus the greatness of God's love in its fullness of grace. And so King David here says, that because his heart is fixed, he will sing and give praise even with his glory. Now, the word praise is also a very interesting word. If you look it up in the ancient symbolic letters, the first is the picture of an eye, and the next is the picture of a shepherd's staff, which is also hooked at the end like the cane of, uh, for example, of the sugar cane that sometimes we see with the Christmas decorations on Christmas trees. Got to take another zip of water here. Bit thirsty on this hot evening. And so, with the word praise, the first thing is that there is an openness to who God is, which I have just been describing in this ultimate negative and positive, which represents the ultimate. Reality of the universe, which essence is this perfection of love. That negatively speaking is the defensive aspect of God's love and holiness. And positively speaking, out of that issues the mercy of God with favor or grace. In the Hebrew, mercy is more synonymous with the word grace but entails the understanding of deserved judgment due to the required holiness of God that is canceled by the power of God to show mercy through his power alone to absorb the judgment of sin by per because he can only be a perfect atoning sacrifice. This is not the place where I would get into in-depth teaching on that. So here we have King David wanting to give praise, and we have the understanding of praise first being an openness to who God is, and then a shepherd's staff that can hook the neck of animals. In other words, we're hooking in to who God is with our heart, because our heart has become erect and open to who God is. We then have the eye of our heart open in perception and receptivity to God, and we hook into God by seeing the beauty of God out of that, which causes us to want to be filled with adulation towards what we are seeing. And so we sing and we express what we are seeing, as it were, when you have, or if I have a beautiful wife or something, which I don't have, I'm still single, but when I've been in love, particular one, oh, I want it. I see how beautiful their face, their countenance is, their gentleness, the, the beauty of their soul, and so on, and I just want to tell them how beautiful they are. And so it is that we want to show forth the praise of God, and this is the understanding of praising God. It is to hook into who God is by expressing what we have chosen to perceive out of the fear of God, for the fear of God is that choice to rightly recognize who God is in his holiness first 
and then out of that in his mercy. And without both, there is not the genuine fear of God. Because without recognizing the mercy of God, we do not recognize the goodness of God. And if we do not see the goodness of God behind the holiness of God, then we become offended at the holiness of God and we shrink back and we begin to think of God as an enigma like Cain and become bitter and begin to form our own self-deceptive, self-oriented perceptions of God that are idolatrous and that see God as a dictator that is controlling and demanding. And that's what happened to Cain and that's what we see with false religion to this day that manifests itself in many forms, including monotheism. Even people that call themselves Christian can have the extreme of a legalistic view of God or of a God that is like a Santa Claus that embraces the devil himself, a love without the integrity in that love that makes that love genuine. In other words, a counterfeit grace that violates the integrity of God's love or the holiness of God's love. And so what I am sharing here in this message is that God is wanting us to praise him out of the awareness of who he is and even with our glory. What does that mean, that word glory? Well, the word glory. So King David wants to praise him even with his glory. What does it mean to praise God with our glory? Well, the word glory is the word kabod. It means weight. Figuratively, it, it, it means this in a good sense, in the sense of copiousness or splendor, the sense of something that is filled with utter fullness of goodness, that is overwhelming, so to speak, that is so real, so satisfying, so immovable in its satisfaction. If you look the word glory up in the symbolic language, what you have is the first letter is the picture of an open palm of a hand, speaking of receptivity. The next is the outline picture of a tent from top view, which speaks of, of habitation. So it's receptivity that is welcoming into our dwelling place something. And then the last one is the picture of a tent door, speaking of a receptivity of heart that allows indwelling into one's whole being and allows the total entrance in that third letter in of God into us. So we're opening our being up to God so that he would not just dwell in one part, but that it would be full and complete. It basically has the understanding of honor. You're honoring someone. You're receiving someone of great worth. So you open up and you say, you are of great worth. Here is my dwelling place. It is totally open to you. And I allow you to enter in, which is the third letter, the opening of the tent door. And so there is in King David the desire to, with all of what he has been given in his natural gifting and talent,
and all the things that would be the utmost expression of quality in him. He's wanting to show forth the quality he has, the honor that's in him. He's wanting to worship God with it. And he does it with instruments. Instruments is his gift. He's using his gift skillfully to describe the glory of God in praise with his mouth. The word praise also means to shine forth in the sense that when you see something glorious, you don't just see it, but you start with your mouth to show it forth to others. And so you're shining with your voice in the sense that your voice is being noticed by others of description of something that is very glorious and the ultimately glorious one who is God. And so King David says, I will be diligent. I will wake early. I will praise you, O Lord, among the people. That is among the nations. And of course, he repeats it. I will sing praises unto thee among the nations. So this is not something that is done only in a nice little corner in our prayer closet. This is something where we praise God among the ethnicities of people, the people that don't know God, the people that do know God. We are on a shame because we know this glory is so majestic. It is so ultimate. It is so real. It is the very source for all creation to find meaning and destiny and purpose without any corruption. Therefore, going on forever and ever, even in our lives personally, in enlargement of creativity and fulfillment. And so King David describes here that he is with all diligence, erect in his heart, and giving all of the honor of his being and every sense of his talent, and shining forth with praise among all the peoples. And then he says that this praise is in regards to two things. It's in regards to the mercy of God and the truth of God. For thy mercy is great above the heavens, and thy truth reacheth onto the clouds. Yes, I have been describing first the truth of God when I've been describing the integrity of God's love, which is his holiness, which is the purity of his love that will not tolerate or condone sin. And so King David is in utter awe of the truth of God, which is the truth of who God is, that he is holy, that there is no corruption in him. God's truth is above all that he can see in the visible creation. It's above the clouds. It's above all creation for it is the very life source of creation. And out of God's truth, there is praise also for God's mercy that is above the heavens, the mercy of God, which reveals God's love, which reveals his favor to those that come to the place of not rebelling against the consequences of God's holiness and the awe of who he is that has resulted in so much suffering in this creation because of the rebellion of our own hearts and of Satan and of other beings against the holiness of God. And so King David exalts God 
above all creation. His glory he acknowledges above all the earth. The weightiness, the copiousness, copiousness of who God is. He's the utter ultimate reality. The very solid rock. In fact, the word reality basically means that which is immovable and everlasting and that cannot change. This reality is only possible in this ultimate perfection of love described in my own illustrative way as the ultimate negative and positive of creation, the ultimate reality, the ultimate source of life and of power and of goodness is in the cross, which represents first the negative horizontal line and then out of that, the positive. And the Hebrew symbolic language has the perfect one letter, which is the symbol of the cross, in case you didn't know it. And that particular letter means in the Hebrew a sign, a symbol. That's what it means. It means a signature, a mark, or a symbol. It's the letter Tav. And it exactly, looks exactly like the cross that Christ died on. That's the way they wrote it back 2000 BC and earlier and up to 1500 BC before letters started to change slightly and then began to be totally different. We have in the cross the ultimate crystallization or focus of the being of God's love when he suffered more than us mere creatures and humbled himself more than you, a mere creature, so that you could be reconciled to God if you repent and refuse to rebel at the holiness of God and acknowledge the goodness of God that is in his holiness and cry out and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And it is in this context of worship that we enter into victory. For the next verse says that thy beloved may be delivered, save with thy right hand and answer me. It is out of that kind of worship that we can answer, we can call unto God for deliverance in our circumstances and see him answer our prayer. In fact, the next verse, verse 7 says, God hath spoken in his holiness, in the integrity of his being of love. He has spoken and he said this, God says, I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem. Now, Shechem means, in the Hebrew language, it means diligence, basically. And I'm just going to that right now. It means shoulder or diligence. Shechem was a place where there was abundance of fruit and flowers. It was the place also where Many major events happened, uh, which I won't go into for a time. I did briefly read on that. And the Lord is saying, I will mete out or divide Shechem. In a sense, he's saying, I'm going to make sure that this beautiful, rich place will be given out rightly in justice to my people as an inheritance. 
He's spoken it in his holiness, and he will also mete out the valley of Sukkoth. Now, the word Sukkoth means booths. It was the place where built, Jacob built his first house and made booths for his cattle. Sukkoth is the Feast of Tabernacles as well. It is the feast that God is going to command all nations to celebrate in the millennial reign of Christ. And I could go into the great symbolism of that, but in this passage, he's saying basically the same thing with Shechem. I'm going to divide this out as an inheritance too, the Valley of Sukkoth. I am going to dwell among you as my God. As it says in Revelations chapter 21, and I heard a great voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And that he will dwell with his people. But in the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles, there is the understanding of building little booths which represent and are to remind the children of Israel of their pilgrimage from Egypt to the Promised Land. And they were to be built with wide open holes in these, out of these branches so that you could see into the heavens and, and you had to endure a bit of the hardship of the colder weather. And that is a symbol of us looking beyond the shell of our own hearts and our own life and getting so wrapped up in our own life. They would look beyond ourselves and see God who is the creator, who made the beauty of the stars and see that city that God is calling us to inherit whose builder and maker is God. And so he calls us at this present time to be in a relationship with him in our heart where the seed of life can sprout forth from our heart because our heart is fixed, it is erect, it is open to the light beyond ourselves. We refuse to allow ourselves to become hardened with the whirl of the busyness of trying to find our own comforts instead of trusting God so that we become a seed that is a shell that is closed to the life of God. Rather, we become those that are recognizing not to allow the busyness of life to shell our hearts in from the life of God, so that we do not see beyond ourselves our inheritance, which is to dwell with God forever in the habitation of the new Jerusalem, which is typified in the dwelling in the booths of Sukkoth in the Feast of Tabernacles, which all nations are commanded to celebrate in the millennial reign of Christ, which will be pointing at that time through that Feast of Tabernacles to the ultimate dwelling of God when the new Jerusalem comes to dwell among men. And the city that is 1,500 kilometers four square high, wide, and so on, comes to down from heaven to dwell in the earth and God dwells in our midst and there's no need for the temple for the glory of God does light in it and there's no need for the natural sun for the glory of God. Heaven itself will come down and conquer the earth. And we go on in the psalm and we read that Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. 
Ephraim also is the strength of mine head. Judah is my lawgiver. There is an acknowledgement of the inheritance in the saints in light. There is an acknowledgement of those things that come from the light of God that have no corruption in them, that bring forth those things that are of God in one another and also as the tribes of Israel. And all of us will go through one of the 12 gates in the New Jerusalem, which represent the 12 tribes of Israel, speaking of some aspect of the uniqueness of God in us that is in conformity to one of those 12 tribes. And God is calling us as his people to come to the place where we know the riches of the inheritance of the saints in the light of God, that brings forth the aspects of the glory of God in one another so that we do not see the fallenness in one another. We look beyond it at the roughness that we see in one another and we see a diamond or a ruby in the rough and we go to them and we encourage them in the things that are of God in them and we learn to humble ourselves and esteem others better than ourselves because of such reverence for who God is because our heart has come to see God's love and its fullness of holiness and grace or holiness and mercy or truth and grace if you will so we enter in to the inheritance that God has for us. And this is the secret to conquering the opposition of the enemy. For the next, for it goes on to describe us inheriting the enemies when it says, Moab is my washpot. And it talks about Moab in Isaiah 25, where it describes the mountain. And it talks about the veil that is over the whole earth. And it doesn't hurt to just briefly turn there to Isaiah 25 and read a little bit of that as we close in on this message. This is Isaiah 25. It speaks of Moab in this chapter, but it has some powerful verses which are important to make note of in Isaiah 25. So I'm Looking at Isaiah 25, I'm just going to double check if I got 25 here in this Isaiah. Pardon me, I got Psalms 25. We'll go to Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25. Turning to it now. And here we are. And it says this, and I can't read, obviously, the whole of this chapter. So I'm going to read the parts that stand out in Isaiah 25. And it says in verse 6, And in this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto all people a feast of fat things, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of wines on the lees well refined. And he will destroy in this mountain the face of the covering cast over all people, and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death in victory. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces. And the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth. For the Lord hath spoken it. And it shall be said in that day, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him. He will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For in this mountain 
shall the hand of the Lord rest, and Moab shall be trodden down under him, even as straws trodden down from the dunghill. And he shall spread forth his hands in the midst of them, as he that swimmeth spreadeth forth his hands to swim, and he shall bring down their pride together with the spoils of their hand. This is describing the day when the Lord will return and set his feet upon the Mount of Olives. And it describes a veil that is cast over all nations that is the very brutent cause of death that comes from Satan, who has blinded the multitudes, and how that veil will be lifted, and people will come to the saving knowledge of Christ, and he will judge the nations that have opposed Israel and have opposed God's people. Their pride will be brought down. So now I'm going to turn back to Psalms 108. Psalms 108. A little bit of a hassle sometimes when you're going through the computer to find these things. But we will get it very quickly on a computer. Psalms 108. Coming there soon. And here we are at Psalms 108 again. And so looking at Psalms 108 here, as I, I was reading to you, I mentioned about Moab being his washpot. And over Edom will I cast out my shoe. Over Philistia will I triumph. And this is the time when the Lord returns. But he wants to bring his people to the place where they look on him whom they have pierced and mourn for him as it describes in Zechariah, I believe, chapter 12. Israel will look, it says, not on him, but on me speaking. This is God speaking. And he says there, look on me whom they have pierced. We all must come to the place where we can look on God with the eye of our heart and acknowledge our need of his mercy so that our heart is circumcised to have a deep cry in it that births genuine faith in what is ultimately trustworthy by the revelation of the perfection of his holiness that is transcendent in mercy or truth and grace that issues forth in grace. And so as we go on in this passage, King David asks a question and he says, Wilt not thou, O God? It said, no, verse 10, who will bring me into the strong city? Who will lead me into Edom? So how do we come against the fortress of the enemy? Edom speaks of red and of blood. And of course, God describes the day when he will judge the heathen that come against Israel with such vehement hate and their blood will go up to the horse bridle for 1,600 furloins. That's a big distance. Tremendous destruction as the sword comes out of his mouth as a sword of light as it describes in Revelations 19, the last two verses. And it will come out and slay those that have come in the rebellion against God, against his people. 
to destroy them. And as their military might is broken and they cry out unto God, he returns and sets his feet on the Mount of Olives and the Mount of Olives splits in half and death is swallowed up in victory as they look on him whom they have pierced and mourn for him and have a revelation of their husband, of their bridegroom, of their one true God, their Messiah. And that is when there is life that is brought back from the dead. And King David acknowledges that God has cast us off. He's acknowledging the holiness of God that has judged him and his people. He doesn't rebel against it. He acknowledges we deserve the judgment and the terrible suffering that we received. We deserved it because we did not come to the place of seeking you and knowing you. He doesn't rebel at the things that God has put them through that are so tragic, but acknowledges the holiness and the righteousness of God's holiness. And he says out of that acknowledgement, wilt not thou, O God, who has cast us off? Wilt not thou, O God, go forth with our hosts? And of course the Lord will go forth with his hosts. When they have been birthed into union with the Lord of hosts, Give us help from trouble, for vain is the help of man. No more will we trust in man or Egypt or any other source as our source of deliverance or even our own military might that in the final end was broken by our enemies but caused us to be cornered to the place of desperation where we found you, O God. Yes, through God we shall do valiantly for he it is that shall tread down our enemies. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy being. And to love him with all your heart means that your heart is fixed, that your heart is open to his holiness, and then you will see the greatness of his mercy. And in that you will have been taught and learned of the Father. And when you have taught and learned of God the Father in the expression of the Father into this time and space realm, you will see your Messiah as the Son, the one of who was pierced for you because he loved you so much. And he's coming back to make you his bride soon. And through God you will do valiantly. All of God's people that seek him and know him will know relationship with him and they will know an authority of him in their lives and a confidence so that they will tread on serpents and on scorpions because they will know that they've been birthed as his sons and as his sons they will know their authority in him. So may we as believers learn the secret of conquering it is that we do not rebel against the holiness of God, but search our hearts and repent. And many of you have committed adultery between your husbands and wives, and God is saying, repent of the adultery that you've committed. And many of you committed adultery with the world, and you're caught up with the busyness of this life, and you're caught up with the gods of amusement, and God is calling you to repent of adultery with the world that is hard in your heart and caused you to commit adultery with your wives and be hardened in your hearts. 
and to cause you to be denominational and divisive. And this is the hour when he is calling his people to repent of these things and to turn back to him with all their heart. For he is bringing forth his end-time purpose of John 17, a bride that is pure and spotless, that cannot tolerate denominationalism or division or anything that limits the full counsel of God. It is time to seek the Lord. It is time to humble ourselves in our congregation and let the Holy Spirit move through each member of the body to repent the leadership, to repent of control that has limited the moving of the Spirit of God. May you hear this message and take it to heart that God will turn this nation back and conquer it for his kingdom in Canada, that God will turn this nation back in the United States, that the hand of judgment will be greatly minimized in our nations if we take our cities and our communities by establishing the beachhead of his glory through repentance, through unity, through purity, through liberty and deliverance from the spirit of control. God bless you. Let us look forward and give God no rest until he causes Jerusalem to go forth as a torch that burns in each community and city on the earth that will accumulate in Jerusalem, in Israel, coming forth in its glory. Thank you for listening to this message. May God bless you all.